This is Michael Moore, and this is Rumble. Well, I know, I, I, I'm just saying, you sound like you're in a good mood today. Um, I guess I am. It's, uh, it's my mother's birthday. And if she were still with us, she would be 100 years old today. This is her 100th birthday. And, you know, birthdays were always a big thing in our family. And it was always uh, uh, April 2nd every year. And she's been gone now for, she's almost, almost 18, almost 19 years. Wow. And, of course, my dad's been gone about um, six, seven years. And so, as I've said to those of you before who no longer, you have a parent that's gone or, both parents gone. It's a different kind of beast, isn't it? Essentially being a now an official orphan. But still, and I've thought about this too, because my dad also would, would turn 100 this year. His birthday's in August. My parents, for that generation, post-World War II, got married later than the, the other parents in the neighborhood. Our parents were always the oldest, it seemed. Because they got married late and they had kids late. Late for back then, you know, not for now. But I was just thinking of doing the podcast today and then something happened earlier this week that really triggered me thinking about my mother. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll start by just saying a few words in honor of her. I asked my sisters if they would join me on this. Uh, They were taking a little (laughs) Well, let's just say they are not public people, but someday I, I... I can guarantee you they will come on this podcast and uh, talk about, we'll talk about things. We're very close and very uh, similar in in many ways and not so similar in other ways. Like they do not sit down at a microphone (laughs) so easily like this. But I was talking to them this week about their mother's 100th birthday coming up. And my younger sister, I I, well, both sisters are younger, but one, one is like 11 months and a bunch of days younger than me not even a full year. And then the other, my younger sister is three years younger than me. And she was saying, you know, uh, if I were to come on the podcast, I would, I would really want to talk about her strength and how, just how strong she was, not trying to make a point of being strong. Our parents were not political people, but they were <laughs> very opinionated. They felt strongly about many things expressed their opinions freely, encouraged us to express our opinions. And when our opinions were different than theirs, then the great debate would take place uh, at the, usually at the dinner table. But they were, especially my mom was very much, she was just, my, my, the younger, my younger sister, she said to me, the youngest one of the three of us, she said, it's funny, you know, I, when the modern day feminist movement began in the, 
early 70s, a little bit late 60s, but early 70s. She said, you know, at first I didn't quite understand it because our mother was already that. Uh, she always worked, always had a job. She went to college for two years, very not heard of in the Flint area back in the late 1930s that you would be going to college. But she worked and she wanted to live the life she wanted to live and she wanted to travel and she she thought education was important. And, and I've told you the story before how she taught me to read and to write when I was four years old. Had me reading the, the local newspaper at four years old. I mean, not the whole paper, you know, but but she started with a little weather box up at the top and then different, you know, sports scores and different things. And then she, by the time I went to kindergarten, I was reading, I was reading books and this is all her. I said to my sister, I said, did, did you ever hear her refer to something as, oh no, that's the girls do that work. That's women's work. And that's the, they do that. You don't have to do that because you're a boy. She goes, no. She said, that's why she was like a feminist before there were feminists in the sense that she didn't treat us different from you or you different from us in that sense. I said, I know that was really, and again, remember, I have to stress this so you don't get the wrong image. My mother was not a lefty. She was not a, not a political uh, person, never ran for office, uh, but she voted. She was the assistant to the township clerk. So she was in charge of the voting rolls and registering people to vote and all of that. But she was constantly referencing one's conscience. And she had a very strong belief in our need to follow our conscience, to do the right thing, and to never join in with the mob, the crowd, just because everybody else was doing it or thinking that way, you need to think that way too. No, just the opposite. Go contrary to the crowd. Think for yourself. You may not be popular. Someday you will be because sooner or later, if what you're thinking and saying is about doing the right thing, people will eventually come along. She taught us not to be afraid to stand alone if that's what needed to happen. She thought it was very important to stop bullies and to not let the kids or any kid pick on us in the neighborhood or at school. But that wasn't good enough, just that we would stand up for ourselves. We had to stand up for the person who was, who was also being picked on. We were very fortunate uh, to have her. Her name was Veronica, Veronica Moore. Uh, her, her maiden name, as they called it back then, was Wall. And actually, her birth name was Helen Veronica Wall. That was her name. She was born in 1921 on this day. She was in my grandmother's, in my grandmother's womb when women finally got the vote in the second half there of 1920. And her mother was a big believer in that. My mother and my grandmother, they, they did not like men <laughs> telling women what to do, how to behave, any of that stuff. And my dad was already that way. He was already that kind of guy. He, wouldn't, he, wouldn't, he was not that bossy kind of, you know, 
God damn it, I said do this. You know, he was not that guy. He was like, I think he really liked that, frankly, about our mother. And kind of knew what the what what was in terms of, um, you know, how things were. I don't want to say that they weren't a democracy between the two of them, but uh, but if it came down to it, my my mom would make the call. And my, my dad, politically, was more, I mean, he was more like the Roosevelt, he, his family, they were all union. So that was the sort of the adjoining piece of this to where um, we always understood what that meant, what it meant to be for FDR. And he got up every morning, 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, Drove into the factory, the General Motors factory, and worked there every day, starting before World War II and then after the war. And I retired in 84. So that's 34 years. 34 years on that assembly line, nonstop, every day. But great health care, <laughs> dental care, all of that. And so they made a good yin and yang with each other. On this day, on my mom's birthday, I don't know if this, if we, if I was doing something, if we were on TV or whatever, if I was making a short film, this would be something else. But on the podcast, I, I uh, just wanted to begin with the Glenn Miller uh, tune there. It's called In the Mood. And then maybe at the end of the episode here, I'll, I'll play a song that I played for her in her last, I think, last couple years of her life. And, uh, and she was really moved by it. So I'll play that for you uh, at the at the end of this. But I just I wanted to acknowledge and give thanks to her on this day for um, being my mother, for bringing me into this world, um, for trying again. I think last Mother's Day I might have told the story about her and my grandmother climbing, making a pilgrimage to the Saints uh, Basilica, or whatever, up in Quebec, St. Anne de Beaupre. And they climb, they climb these steps. They have to, back then, for the pilgrimage, they have to climb it on your knees, like 29 steps. And um, she had just lost her first baby, had a miscarriage, and um, didn't know what to do, didn't know whether to try again, or, or was afraid because if she did try again, the next one wouldn't make it. And, and, and so finally her mother said, let's get in the car and drive to Quebec City. And so that's what they did. And they made their pilgrimage. And a few months later, <laughs> she was pregnant with me. <laughs> so then, yes, that's how I came in. I came into the world. And uh, I just, I, I guess I just wanted to acknowledge her on this date and to get, like I said, give those thanks. So much of what I've been able to do and you know, over the years has been because um, she made a point to teach me, to teach my sisters things, the importance of, of being educated, the importance of books, 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 books everywhere in the house, and in my grandparents' house, books, books everywhere, books, um, read, 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 and um, take, I've told you about the trip she took us to Washington, D.C. I was 11 years old, my sisters were, were 10 and 8, and um, she wanted to, us to see how our nation's capital works. I told you a little bit about this on the day, the, or the day after the attack on the Capitol. 
how upset I was at that. But the fact, the lucky, happy accident that we ended up there in it was late June, early July of 1965, and and they were debating the House and the Senate, two different bills at that moment. The uh, Social Security Act of 1965, which established Medicare and Medicaid, they did not exist before that. And it was voted on that summer and passed and signed by Lyndon Johnson. And the other bill at the same exact time was the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And she took us into the Senate and to the House uh, balconies, the, the it's called the gallery. And, and we leaned over the rail and watched them debate and pass these two bills, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the, and the Medicare and Medicaid Act establishing health care for the poor and health care for elderly citizens. Um, and we were, we were present. We were present watching this in person, thanks to our mom wanting to give us a civics lesson. This is who our mother was. And yes, okay, her meatloaf, not so good. But I, <laughs> it just, um, the three of us are grateful. And I just wanted to say this out loud today on this day of her 100th birthday. I don't know how much of what you're listening to on this podcast, what you've seen in my movies or read in my books or the work I've done on, on other levels things I've, how much of that where you can draw a straight line from her to this and before her, I mean, she had a, a great, 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 great grandfather that was in the Revolutionary War. And before that, she had a, a I think, I'm not going to say it eight times, I think like an eighth great grandfather that fought against Cromwell in the civil war that was taking place in England in the 1600s and they lost and they were, he was captured uh, and Cromwell decided to send him and 300 others uh, who were Irish and Scottish um, on a boat. He sold them essentially in de- as indentured servants to a plantation in the new world, I think in Massachusetts. And so around 1640, this is my first, this is my mom's people came in the bowels of a, of a boat sold into indentured servitude. And that's how they land in this, in this country back in the 1640s. So that's how long, you know, my, uh, that side of my family has, has been here. Grateful to all of them. Sorry for what they had to put up with and what through as Irish or uh, Scottish or whatever. And really glad that my mom took the time with me, with my sisters. We're so much better off for it. All our entire lives, we've been better off for it. And I loved her. I still love her. I miss her. I think of her often. And I just wanted to share that with you uh, today, on this day of her 100th birthday. Thank you for letting me do that. And, and I've got one other thing to, to say about this today. It's a fairly short episode, short for me. 
Uh, but I wanted to thank our underwriters for today's episode. I'm so grateful to them uh, for what uh, they do and what they've what they've done for Rumble. So first off, I want to just thank Amazon Studios. That's their film division. They make some great movies and they put out some great documentaries. And this one that's underwriting today's episode is a movie called Time. And it's by Garrett Bradley. She was nominated here with this film for an Academy Award for Best Documentary this past month. The Academy Awards are at the end of April here. But I, I just want to tell you something that I really love about this film. You know, when, when discussing what's wrong about our system of mass incarceration, people often always focus on those who are wrongfully convicted. I have spent a lifetime focusing on this. And I just believe there are so many hundreds of thousands of people that should be nowhere near a jail because they're innocent throughout the years. It's got to be in high numbers, right? But here's what's interesting about this movie. This film actually centers on a family who did commit the crime. Oh, so it poses this question. If someone makes a mistake, does that mean that they are now no longer worthy of love? compassion, and to be treated as a human being? How do we treat those who've made a mistake? The prison industrial complex is not only unjust to people who did not commit crimes, it is barbaric and racist and inhumane to the people who have committed a crime. And that I and you, many of us just are unable to live with that. And this film helps tell that story and allows the audience to see life through their eyes. So, my friends, do yourself a favor. Watch the movie Time on Prime. I'll have a link uh, to the film right here on the description page of this episode. And again, I want to thank Amazon Studios for supporting this podcast, supporting my voice, and supporting the work of talented filmmakers like Garrett Bradley and her excellent film Time. And before we get back to my final words here on the episode today, I want to also thank our great underwriter, Signal Wire. Signal Wire. There's been a lot of talk about life here during the pandemic, getting back to normal pretty soon and all that. Well, one of the things <laughs> that's here to stay, I think we all agree with this, uh, for better or for worse, even if it's just a day a week, is working remotely. And that is what Signal Wire is here to do, to help us have a better experience working remotely uh, from home or on the road or whatever. SignalWire is a remote communication platform for people who like to actually, you know, communicate. So if you're tired of confusing passcodes, crappy audio quality, a never-ending uh, series of tech issues, and a screen full of people you can barely see or read their name or whatever. I've used this signal wire, so I'm telling you, it's the way to go, and it's, and it's what we're going to be doing whenever we need to do this. And I encourage you to start using signal wire too. So sign up before April 30th at signalwire.com, and signal wire is spelled just like it sounds, signal, S-I-G-N-A-L, wire, W-I-R-E, and that's one word, signalwire.com, and use the code MORE, my last name, 
M-O-O-R-E, and SignalWire, get this, if you, if you sign up, use my name, they will buy lunch for your first team meeting that you have on SignalWire. This is no joke. So when you sign up to there on signalwire.com, they'll explain the terms and conditions all there. They're not going to actually make the lunch and bring it to you. There's, you know, there's rules to follow, but I'm telling you, this is, this is a kind of a cool offer. I've never seen anybody offer something like this. So sign up with them, give it a shot. It's signalwire.com. Use the code M O O R E more signalwire.com. Thank you very much for helping to support my voice and the voice of all the people that appear here on rumble. So, before we go today, as I was thinking about my mother this week and her 100th birthday coming up here on Friday, April 2nd, well, let's just, I'm just going to lay it out here. I couldn't take my eyes off the TV set the first three days of this week. The, the trial of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. The murdering cop, his name is Derek Chauvin. The killing cop on trial. God knows what will happen at the end of this trial. I'm sure a lot of people don't have their hopes up that justice will take place. But if you tuned in, as I did, on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, I should have turned it off. But I've trained myself, don't look away, Mike. Don't look away. We can't look away. And how many times do we want to look away, my friends? All the time, right? Because it, the burden of it is too much to bear. We cannot believe we live in a country like this where this crap still goes on. And listening to the, all the witnesses, the majority of these witnesses in the first few days were, well, the, I would say the, almost the majority were young women, teenage girls forced to watch the police snuff the life out of a human being, an unarmed human being, while he was handcuffed and on the pavement. Not just teenage girls, a nine-year-old girl testified. A firefighter, a young woman in her 20s, when she stepped in and tried to offer her help because she could see George Floyd was dying, she said, I'm, I'm a Minneapolis firefighter. I'm, I'm EMT. Let me, let me try. Let me get in here right now and, and, 
And they're like, get up on the curb. You're a firefighter. Whatever the cop said, it was worse than that. But it was it was just so, um, any woman that's tried to do a man's job has had to listen to this kind of crap. And she's becoming distraught standing on the curb because she knows that, that he's having the life choked out of him. He can't breathe. He's on that pavement, the cop's knee to his neck. And you can see now when they showed, they showed the murder from five different angles. You can see him pressing down. And as, and as George Floyd kept saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. He said it 27 times. Every time he said it, the cop, cop put his knee harder into his neck. You can see it. And just looked up. Like he, like no reaction, no emotion from this cop. His hand on his hip. He looks directly into the lens of the cell phone of Darnella Frazier, a 17-year-old who shot, who held that camera so steady, her phone. I can't believe it's, it's, um... I know it's Oscar season, but it's this is the most important film of the year. The eight minutes and 46 seconds. And then we saw the longer version from the other angles. Nine minutes and 29 seconds. He looks right into her, into Darnella's camera. The look on his face, everybody knows that look from a cop. The look, the look said, you're next. And one witness after another, from the nine-year-old girl to the sixty, the man in his sixties, the elderly uh, gentleman, who broke down on the stand because it's the first time we saw the police body cam footage of the murder. If you haven't seen, I'm not suggesting you see it, but the camera, because it's a POV close-up camera, it takes you right into the murder. You are there. It's like you are, it's almost like watching a, a 3D film because you, it's like your knee is on his neck. And I thought, yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's right. Maybe we should watch that. White America. It is our knee on his neck. On everyone's neck who is been forced to live a life struggling poverty racism sexism anything to keep you back keep you down I just sat there watching it over and over again watching the witnesses crying on the stand forced to watch it again They ask the young woman who's the firefighter, you see the ambulance pull away after he's dead. And the prosecutor said, asked her on the stand, we see here in the, in, the, in the other camera, you're still standing there on the curb. You're still there. Why, why, why are you still there? George Floyd is dead and gone, taken away. And she answered, she said, I just, I don't know. I felt like I had to stay there because most of the people on that curb were black and people of color. And there was a black man there and the, uh, the cops who just committed this murder, they're still there. They're still there. 
And I just felt like I needed to stay there to offer whatever, whatever, protection, whatever. I can't remember the exact word she used, but she, she didn't want to leave them there with the cops. Wow, what courage. I have to tell you, the level of anger watching this, and every one of these witnesses said that they have lived for a year with this guilt that because they didn't do anything other than yell at the cops to let go of him or photograph what was going on, that they should have done something else, even though they didn't know what that something else would be, where they would end up alive if they intervened. Yet they carry this guilt with them. And I thought, what would I have done if I were there? What if I was driving by and saw the police murdering somebody? What would you do? It probably does matter if you're black or white of what you feel you could do. I can pretty much guarantee, no matter what your race is, uh, if you were to intervene and try to get that cop off that guy's neck, I'm not saying if you're white, I don't think you would die. I don't think they kill you. They don't usually do that. Remember, in Charleston and Atlanta, you know, any mass murdering white guys, they all live. They never get killed. They take them in you know, peacefully. But what would you do? I just, I couldn't get this thought out of my head. And I consider myself a pacifist. I am a nonviolent person. I do not commit acts of violence. I would not commit an act of violence. I don't believe violence is the answer. I have lived by that my entire life since I was in school. And yet... If you, if you were there, you'd feel just like those kids felt. I've got to do something. I've got to do something. And, you know, I want to reach out to them, those kids, especially though. There's four or five of them that got their cameras out, their phones. You did something really important. You honored George Floyd by photographing not only his last moments here on earth, but, but showing the injustice that every black and brown person knows in this country. They already know it. They don't need to see the footage. But white people need to watch it over and over and over again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We created the system. It was created in our name. It was meant to be passed on to us, and it was. And life was supposed to be easier for us, and it has been. Not for everyone, but most of us at least have had a leg up, at least have had a foot in the door, at least have had a chance. How about just a chance? We've had that. If you had a baseball bat and you came upon Officer Chauvin with his knee in the neck, of a black man and he was killing him and you could see the man's eyes rolling back into his head as we saw and as we heard this week in that trial. If you had a baseball bat, could you walk up and just whack it right across that cop to get him off that dying man? Don't we agree as a society that we have both a moral and a legal right to intervene when we see somebody 
being murdered, raped, robbed, assaulted? Don't we have a moral and legal right to say, no, I now have a right to stop this by any means necessary? Don't say you don't believe that. Because if, if, if someone was in the process of killing one of your parents, your spouse, your child, your friend, would you stand there? No. You wouldn't think straight. You'd jump in. You'd do something. You might get hurt. You might get killed. But I, and this is, I just, I have to just be honest here. While I was watching that this week, I just wanted to, I wanted to get out a baseball bat. I wanted to get out. I don't have a gun, but if I had a gun, would I have the moral and legal right to stop the murder of another human being? You know I would have that right, and you would have that right. Would we do it? I don't know. I doubt I would because I don't believe in violence. So am I going to stick to my belief while I watch a man die? I want to thank every single person on that curb for shouting and yelling and demanding the cops stop. It was very brave of all of you. The young women who got out their phones and videotaped the whole thing. <laughs> that is a weapon, and you used it beautifully. And it's not just these cops, hopefully, that are going to go down. It created a movement. It ignited a movement. People took to the streets. In just one year's time, we're, what you did, Darnella, and Alicia and the others um, who were filming what was going on there, what you did was you made it impossible now for people to remain silent. When Georgia passed a law this past week to suppress the black vote in Georgia, to make it harder for black and poor people to vote, there was a couple days of silence and then boom, the voices, first the voices of the black and brown community, of women, of Asian Americans, boom. And after a couple days, the two, probably the two biggest Georgia corporations, Delta Airlines and Coca-Cola, both spoke out against this Georgia racist law. Man, when you can't even keep corporate America on your side, you friggin' yahoos, you're doomed. You're over. You're not going to run this country anymore. You're not going to run us into the ground anymore. You're not going to kill people because of the color of their skin anymore. And everybody's going to vote freely and fairly and easily. And they just kept playing it over and over again. Mama, mama, I can't breathe. Mama. Mama, I can't breathe. He's crying. He's being lynched on the curb by a cop and his cop buddies. A knee. 
his windpipe. <laughs> Mama. And of course, somewhere between all those mamas, I thought of mine this week and her 100th birthday coming up and thinking how lucky I was, oh, how privileged I was. And if there's anything I learned growing up, it's that I don't get to have that privilege unless everyone has that privilege. And whatever it is I have to do now, however it is I have to step it up, do more, act more, give more, organize more, that is how I was raised. That is who I am. And I don't do as much as I could or should all the time. And I needed to think about that this week. And I needed to think of what is the best birthday gift I could give my mother here on Good Friday. And that's what I'm thinking about today. And I'm so sorry, Mr. Floyd. I have cried too many tears this week, watching this over and over again and listen to these brave young people on the witness stand. I promise you I'll do my best to see that there are no more George Floyds and especially there are no more Derek Chauvin's. Actually, I want more George Floyds, but I want them alive. I want to make sure that there are no more murders of any further George Floyds in this country done in my name with my tax dollars by a man in a uniform. That's over. And I will do my best and I will do everything I can in my power and without my power. I'll do that to honor you, Mr. Floyd. And to my mother, wherever you are, to honor you for teaching me that that is the only thing that needs to be done. To always do that. To always do the right thing. I thank her for that. I thank all of you who are the same way, who are thinking the same thing, who are going to do the same thing, who are already doing the same thing. We're all going to do this together. We're all going to come out of this as a much better people. I do believe that. It won't happen on its own. It won't happen unless we all are willing to take the risk. Unless we're all willing to be brave. Yes, some of us may get hurt. Some of us may get punished. Some of us may not live. But there'll be less of that. Because we are the majority. We are taking the stand. I thank everybody who's, who has done that. I thank the parents who raised all of you who gave you a chance to do that. Your mothers, your fathers, the children that you, we have raised, are raising, all of that, the better world that we want. This, this can happen. It's up to us. I never want to hear another person say again that they can't breathe. And I always want to believe and know 
that if there's a knee on their neck, that is my knee. I am responsible. I have to stop it. You and I. There are tens, if not hundreds of millions of us, my friends. We have no other choice. I want to close by playing the song I played for my mom in the, you know, before she passed away. I want her to hear the song from a folk singer named Nancy Griffith. Um, and the songwriters, her name is Julie Gold. And I believe in the, in this version, it's a, it was a live version of um, Nancy Griffith and Emmylou Harris joins her in singing this song. My mom always had a special place in her heart for New York because her sister had moved here after college and lived here her whole life. And so my mom came here a lot to see her sister. And, and then when we were kids, in addition to bringing us to D.C. to give us a civics lesson, she brought us to New York to take us to theater and music and all the great things about New York, Statue of Liberty, Ellis Island. She loved, she loved this place. She loved, she loved telling us about the immigrants that would come here, our people, her people. You know, the descendants of slaves and the descendants of Native Americans, they didn't come through New York Harbor. One, one group was already here and was essentially annihilated. And the other group was kidnapped and brought here in chains and built this country for free as slaves. But all the rest of us whose people got out of wherever they were, who escaped here, who barely made it here, they were so poor. The song is called Good Night, New York. And I played this for her, and she loved it. She teared up listening to it. And uh, I'm glad I got to play it for her before she left us. So I'd like to end today by playing it for you, the the entire song, and uh, give it a give it a listen. Have a good weekend. Be good to your moms if they're still with us. If they're not, think about all that she gave you. For those who didn't have it so good, didn't have a good home, I'm sorry. I am sorry for that. But please know that you're loved, and I know so many of you and you're people I've known through the years that you made a decision that when you were going to have kids that you were going to do it differently and you did and I've I've met your kids and I can see that you've done that so we can always change things and make them better my good friends thank you for listening today to my mother on her 100th birthday to George Floyd who there will be justice we will live in a different America thank you everyone um, Nancy Griffith taking us out here with uh, Good Night, New York. My mother came to America, sailed to the harbor of home and of dream. Back in the thirties, with the streets paved in. And the sky lays with moonbeams Mothers and daughters 
Good night.